All right, welcome back. Um, so we're switching gears a little bit. Uh, you know, one of the, I think one of the really exciting things about uh, healthcare medicine today is how so many different, different, different technologies are starting to come into play um, to affect you know, wellness, prevention, therapeutics. Uh, I just spent the weekend in Boston at this health food camp that was run by O'Reilly Media. And what was really exciting there is a lot of people from different fields are, are coming together to, uh, to impact uh, wellness, prevention, healthcare, et cetera. And I think kind of the, the, one of the godfathers of the field is our next speaker, uh, Alex Kadad, Alejandro, Alejandro. A very amazing uh, physician, uh, originally from Colombia. Um, he um, is now based in Toronto, uh, where uh, he chairs the, uh, the group there, um, looking at, at all aspects of, of technology and, and healthcare. And as a real thought leader, he has the, the Haddad scale, he'll talk about the Maimonides project. His bio goes on for, for, for 20 minutes. So without further ado, uh, Alejandro is gonna take us through the meaning and mission of, of medicine and technology. Thank Thanks. Thank you very much. <clears throat> well, 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 it's a real delight to be here with you today, and we are going to be sharing about One Life Unit. For me, there is nothing, nothing, nothing more important than how I use my time. And these days, I only do things I enjoy with people I like with no regrets. Yes. 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 So <clears throat> let's make sure we have a lot of fun during the next life unit. And for me, a life unit is an hour. <laughs> so this hour is not going to come back. Yes, I used to start thinking, uh, leave the moment, too short for me. Carpe diem, too long for me. A day. <clears throat> I would screw it up most of the time, and then at the end, I would feel regretful about what I missed. So now, one hour at a time. <laughs> so let's work together to have a memorable hour worth spending. And I want to start by, by asking you to think about why we are here. Why? Why? The big, deep why. Why are you here? Why? Here, right here, right now. To change the world. Yeah, okay, I like that. To achieve our goals. To make a difference. Well, I think this is already a good, a good start. Um, I'm here for similar reasons. And I am also here because of this guy. This is my grandfather, Ricardo. He was a physician. And I'm not only here because of him genetically, because I have one-fourth of his DNA in me, but because of his example. This guy was an obstetrician. He was an amazing surgeon. And we had, uh, at that time, in our neighborhood, in rural Colombia, this accent comes from South America, we had ham radio. And uh, he would get messages from doulas, women who were trying to deliver babies in, in remote communities, and when they were in trouble, they would call him. And uh, he would call his neighbor and would say, would you drop me at such place? And drop me meant drop me. He would, he would go on a crop duster, got a parachute, strap his surgical equipment to his belt, and he would jump and anesthetize the woman, perform a cesarean section, and come home by mule. Sometimes he would take six to eight hours to get home. 
with a big smile, full of mud, and a big smile. He would read every night of his life. And I loved that guy. I said, I want to be a doctor like him. My father, not on his side, but on, on the other side, was also a physician. And I would tell him, I would tell you about him at some other point. But I want to talk about Ricardo because this man who was the fastest surgeon, also the funniest man I met, he would sit and tell jokes, dirty jokes, forever. And people would congregate around him. This big professor, this very famous doctor telling dirty jokes for hours okay? and hours and hours. And people would laugh and he would laugh with them. When he was about 50, he started to get some pains in his joints. And his hands started to get stiff. And he was the fastest surgeon. He held the record as to how quickly to get a baby out of a, of a woman's womb, because sometimes you had to do it very quickly. So when there were these difficult cases, he would go there. And then he started to get slower. And his joints started to hurt. And, um, and he had to start to leave some of his disciples to operate. And he would give, him, give them directions. At some point, he started to get some tremor. His hands started to shake. So he had to stop operating completely. One day, <clears throat> he started to have problems to swallow. And he had a stroke. And um, we love him so much that we would give him the latest things we could find to keep him going. And there was a day when it was impossible to, to keep him going as it was because he was starting to choke. He was trying to eat, and food would go through his windpipe. And he would <coughs> cough. It would be very traumatic for everybody. And we concluded, it was 20 years later, by the way, that he needed a tracheostomy, a tube on his neck to let him breathe there so food would not go to his lungs and kill him. When he was going into the operating theater, we were there. He did this. And we all stopped. And then he called us. And he said, when you reach 60, if you don't feel well, shoot yourself. This, from one of the happiest people we had met in our lives, one of the most successful people. And that's still with me. When you reach 60, if you don't feel well, shoot yourself. We kept him going for many more years. He had a tracheostomy. He couldn't speak well. We had to feed him. We had to change him. He lost his autonomy completely. And he lived until he was in his mid-80s. And he died on the 21st, on the, sorry, on the 20th of July of 1999. This week will be on Wednesday, his anniversary. And then we, we stopped. He stopped us in our tracks. And we started to wonder if we had, I don't know if I lost the microphone, if we had done more harm to him 
we loved him so much that probably we hurt him. We hurt him a lot. All his disciples wanted to keep, to keep him going and to keep him going for as, long as, for as long as possible. We don't want to have a life without him. So this was one of the key moments in my life when I started to ask myself why I was where I was, doing what I was doing. And when Daniel invited me to, to share some ideas with you today, I couldn't resist to propose this topic because we are very good with technology and I can show you any gadgets you want and any fancy coding and applications and that, you see, or, or pieces of software that could help us extend our lives. But the question today that I want to share with you is how can we make it worthwhile? So this goes to my granddad. And I don't know how many of you have been to a long-term care facility or seniors home. How many of you? Does it look like that? Or worse? We are dumping people into these places. We are dumping people into these places. We have put more years into our lives. And many. 100 years ago, our life expectancy in most high-income countries was about 40 years. Now it's over 80. Have we gained a lot? Has it been a true victory for us, for our amazing knowledge and our amazing technologies? Or is this a perfect victory? Do you know what a perfect victory is? Something that appears to be a success and it isn't. So when I go to these places, my heart breaks. These people are lonely. They don't feel very well, isolated, and waiting to die. You see, when I was growing up, the cycle of a living organism was to be born, to grow, to reproduce, and to die. Now we are born, we grow, we reproduce, and we live, 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 and eventually die. One of the goals of this singularity movement is eternal life, correct? Think about it. If you read the singularity is near or the age of spiritual machines and all that, what in essence we are looking for with a lot of the work that is going on is to live forever. The question is why and how are we going to cope with ourselves and other people if we have to endure each other's company forever? So this is an opportunity for me to have a conversation with you about this. I spend a lot of my time dealing with suffering. And since my grandfather's death, I decided to make my life a mission. So my mission is to eliminate unnecessary suffering and to enable myself first and other people to live the longest possible life with as much joy as possible and with no regret. And now I spend most of my time dealing with regrets. I cannot imagine how much regret people accumulate. And I'm often, too often, the first and lonely person with whom people talk about their regrets and their fear of dying. Because we don't talk about them. For practical purposes, we are immortal. And in our heads, 
we're all going to die peacefully. If we die, if we don't manage to get all those technologies to help us live forever, the second best alternative is to die in our sleep after a great night of sex, <laughs> after a wonderful meal, not noticing it. The bad news is that most of us, if things don't change dramatically and quickly, are going to have horrendous death. 75% of people would like to die at home, surrounded by their loved ones. In the US, in Canada, in the UK, in any other high-income country from where we have data. Now 75% of people die in hospitals, and most of the time in intensive care units, on their own, surrounded by health professionals who don't give a shit about who they are, really. And suffering a lot. So why are we here? Why are we here? Why are we doing what we are doing? What do we want to achieve? How can we ensure that we don't fall into the same trap into which my grandfather's disciples and I fell into when we tried to keep him going and going and going and going? How can we protect some time to reflect upon what's happening around us beyond the technology? So this is the list of the top causes of death now. Take your pick in high-income countries. I don't like this menu. Okay. It says ischemic heart disease, for those of you at the back who cannot see it. So you have a heart that is not working very well. And as Daniel was saying earlier, okay, you cannot walk, you cannot breathe because you're very tired until you eventually die. If you're lucky, you get a heart attack and you don't know that you had heart disease for a long time. Second option, stroke. How about that one? Half body paralyzed or unable to speak for a while. Trachea, bronchos, or lung cancers. Alzheimer's and other dementias. How about that? This sucks. This is the menu. This is the menu. Are we dying by success? We double the life expectancy, and some people insist that we are experiencing what some call the curse of Tithonus. Are you familiar with Tithonus? Research, Tithonus, T-I-T-H-O-N-U-S, Tithonus. This was a handsome man in Greece, and he fell in love with Aurora, the goddess of dawn. And Aurora fell in love with him. But Aurora, or Eos, was immortal. And, and Tithonus was a human, he had to die. So Aurora couldn't conceive a life without Tithonus. So she went to Zeus, to Jupiter, begging him to make Tithonus immortal. And, he, and she nagged him and nagged him and nagged him and nagged him. And Zeus would say, Tithonus has to die. He's a, he's a human. But I love him. I love him. Could you please make him immortal? And he had a soft spot for beautiful young ladies. So he gave up. I said, okay, granted, Tithonus will be mortal. And, and Aurora went home very happy to have an eternal life full of love with Tithonus. But time started to go by. And Tithonus' hands started to hurt. And his hands started to shake, just like my grandfather's. And he started to go crazy. 
and he couldn't breathe because his heart wasn't working very well. And one day he got naked and ran out of the, on the street screaming, and Aurora was really petrified. So she went running to Zeus and said, what happened here to Jupiter? And he said, well, I granted your wish. You wanted eternal life, but you didn't ask me for eternal youth. I can tell you now that we are living the curse of Tithon. That's my life. That's what I can see around me. And we are responsible for most of that with our great technologies, with our great advances. And these are just data from the US from 2006. We continue to design the health system on the basis of organs or individual diseases or individual symptoms. So we have a department of cardiology. That means the heart. We study the heart. And we are trying to improve the heart. We have the, the department of rheumatology. So we figure out how to improve the functioning of the joints. I went to university for close to 20 years. And most of my training was on how to diagnose things and how to fix them. Figure out what's wrong with the patient and then prescribe the most appropriate treatment. And when my grandfather became a physician, he was a god. He had access to life-saving things, antibiotics, insulin, these incredible discoveries that could make lethal diseases go away. When my father became a physician, he was a demigod because he could cure some things, but he couldn't many others. And now I'm a physician, and I can tell you that most of the things with which I have to deal are incurable chronic conditions. And if you look at this data, 16% of people there, 16% of the expenditures are for those who have no chronic diseases, people with no incurable things. You break a bone and go to the emergency room. And only 18% of what we spend, we spend on people with one chronic condition. The rest goes for people who have to live with two or more at the same time. This is a new phenomenon. In the 20th, 21st century, we are paying the price of our success in the 20th century. Now we're living long enough to have something known as polypathology. So we start to accumulate diseases just like my grandfather or like Tithonus. And this is not a trivial thing. When Medicare data are analyzed, look at this, 80% of what is spent goes to people with five or more chronic diseases at the same time in the same person. Imagine having arthritis, diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's and cancer at the same time. Imagine that. How fun would it be to have a life with all these things? 80% of Medicare expenditures now. Some people estimate that 60% of expenditures in any country, anywhere in the world, are going now to people with multiple chronic diseases. Do you think that their quality of life is very high? How many of you think 
that we physicians, we doctors, get trained to deal with this. Nobody told me in close to 20 years of university education that this was going to happen. I was taught how to read electrocardiograms and be very good at that to make sure I could fit the heart, I could, I could fix the heart, and how to prescribe things to cure people. But what is happening to most of these individuals is that we have forgotten something very important. We have forgotten that it's not only important to put more years into our lives, but that we need to make every possible effort we can to put, to put more life into those years. Okay. How can we put more life into all those years we hope to gain with these exponentially evolving technologies? How can we prevent or mitigate or reverse the curse of tetanus? And there is a key word that I would like to share with you today, which is well-being. We all want to be well. That's what well-being means. How can we ensure that every day we are well? And that other people are well. And that their families and our families are well. That our communities are well. And that along the way, the planet is well. As a member of the baby boomers, I have to apologize. We have been the worst generation that ever existed in the history of humanity. We could have eliminated hunger by now. We have plenty of food in the world. We could have eliminated poverty. We could have transformed the educational system. So everybody, everywhere, could enjoy a singularity university-like experience. No, we force the kids to sit in classrooms, to listen to boring teachers, to tell them stuff that is not relevant to them, and have them assessed on the basis of their ability to regurgitate what we throw at them. We ruin the health system. You know how much the US has in unfunded liabilities coming from healthcare? You think that it's the economy that's going to the banking crisis or the housing crisis, what's going to be the downfall of the US economy? Unfunded liabilities in the US, how much? 55 trillion of promises made to people to give them healthcare services. And the money's not there. And for those of us who are not from the US, this is very relevant because this is the biggest economy around. And if this country collapses, we don't know the kind of world in which we're going to be living the rest of our days. And look at the silly games that these politicians are playing. Do they really care about our well-being, I wonder? Okay. So let's spend some time talking about well-being. The why are we here? And I would like to claim that we are here because we would like to be well. We're enjoying being here, and we want to ensure that our work makes other people be well, and the planet. Are you with me? Are you enjoying this so far? Okay. Any feedback? I'm at 38 minutes, so. Okay. So we have a problem. In 1948, after the Second World War, we created the United Nations 
and one of the first agencies was the World Health Organization. So we had this global organization, which was the first effort by humans to join forces at the planetary level to improve everyone's health. Imagine that. That was a very lofty goal. The World Health Organization was created in 1948, and then we are going to have this entity that would allow us to improve the health of everybody, of every population around the world. One problem was, how do we define health? What is health? What is health? Holy shit, I bet they said. Mostly men, not mostly, all men in 1948. They had to define health, otherwise how do you have a world health organization? So what's health? Holy shit, it's here, okay. Correct, what is that? What's beauty? What's happiness? What's sadness? What's love? We cannot define these things. These things are called constructs. In other words, we can not express what we can feel. We know more than we can tell. But in 1948, this group of men who didn't have email or Facebook or any of those things had to exchange letters to come up with a definition of health. And they decided that health was a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not just the absence of disease or infirmity. 1948. And we did a review of the literature that we published in 1998. If you are connected, do a search. And we started a global collaboration on the meaning of health in 1998, inviting the entire world to see if this definition was still good or not. Because everybody criticizes it but very few alternatives have been proposed. But the point is that at that time, well-being was regarded as a component of health. So health is not just the absence of disease. It's also a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. And that word complete upset a lot of people. But that was the goal that was set by humanity in 1948. However, over the last 60 years, we have forgotten the well-being side. So this is for you, Alex's definition, okay? or Alex's conceptual framework. Because for most of us, health continues to be the absence of disease. And for most governments, if you look at how we spend money in what we call the health system or the healthcare system, it's really to combat disease. What you have heard here, I bet, around health is how to eliminate disease. So I propose to you that we focus on well-being and that we acknowledge that in 60 years we have failed to consider the concept of health as something other than disease, so let's leave it like that. So we have a healthcare system that enables us to live a disease-free life. But that we need a wellness system that would enable us an enjoyable, to have an enjoyable life and that together we might increase our chances of being well. Does it make sense? Okay. How do we do that? How do we do that? Okay. By knowing what the healthcare system has been talking about for many years. And this is the menu. And many of you have systems thinking, so I'm 
think apps, okay? think interventions. So from health promotion, by the way, most of the gains in life expectancy that we have is not because of medical progress. It's because our levels of wealth improved. It's because the way in which we manage water improved because we dispose of garbage in much more effective ways because we got vaccines. So health promotion and disease prevention are responsible for most of the credit we take within the traditional healthcare system driven by physicians, by hospitals, by disease fighting efforts. And I would like to, to claim today and to make the point as strongly as I can that we need to do something very dramatic and drastic about the diagnose and fix model that we have. We have been trying to diagnose disease and treat disease for too long. It's important, but it's not the whole story. And now this thing is backfiring. Some people, and you have the authors there, insist that the American medical system, and for that matter, almost any medical system around the world is the leading cause of death for the population it claims to, her, to, to help. More people die every year as a result of medical error and the adverse effects of the interventions that we hope will help people than as a result of all of the wars of the 20th century combined, in the US at least, where we have data. And yet we celebrate Dr. House, who is a great di diagnostician, and most people who go into medicine want to diagnose people. And in every generation, we have had an equivalent. We had Dr. Kill there and Quincy and all sorts. And we continue to find cures desperately. I think this is very important. I'm not downplaying that. All I'm saying is we need to be very careful about the consequences that our good intentions may have. There is a book that I highly suggest, well, more than suggest, recommend that you read. It was written in the 70s by Ivan Illich. It's called Medical Nemesis. Medical Nemesis. The first sentence of that, of that book goes along the lines of something like this. The healthcare system has become a threat to our health. And the risk is that we contribute to that. Over 90% of health expenditures are going into this. Over 90% of medical research is going into this. Now with the green technologies, genomics, robotics, infonomics, and nanotechnologies. Great stuff. Very little into the consequences of what we do, and very little into the well-being aspect of what we do. Any questions or comments at this? I prefer the interactive approach to life. Yes, please. because, well, you, you might be right, but the WHO definition included well-being, you see. We were the ones that somehow hijacked that 
and focused on the fighting uh, disease part of the equation. I think that it goes farther back. It goes to the enlightenment. You're right, the scientific method. About three to 400 years ago, a bunch of men, I'm looking for women scientists in the enlightenment, by the way. Let me know if you find. I'm writing a book on the five most influential women in the history of, of, of humankind. So I, I welcome your candidates. I have a personal board of directors with five women there, out of six members. And my wife is the chair of the board. But in the Enlightenment, we had a bunch of people who started to come up with what was known as natural laws. So humans started to take power from the gods before what happened was God's will. Then suddenly we, could, we realized that we could predict things and that we could manipulate reality and that we could understand the building blocks of reality and if we modified those building blocks, we would modify reality. That's what Galileo, you see Boyle, Newton, all these people, Laplace did. And we became very good at that and we developed the method, the scientific method. We tend to forget that the driver of the scientific method is the null hypothesis. This is not going to do good. I am not going to make a difference. No, 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 no. Very soon we said, I'm going to prove myself right. I'm going to make a difference no matter what. So that led to the industrial age. The industrial age is really the manifestation of the enlightenment. It's when we put in practice all those discoveries about natural laws. And we were very good. We could produce, you see, things out of raw materials at incredible speeds. And we developed the production line and all those. Then suddenly, everything in our society became industrialized. And now we have an industrialized healthcare system. We have products. And that product-oriented approach, I think, in part, has led to the focus more on the fighting disease than on the promoting well-being. It's much more difficult to measure units of well-being using. It's easier to measure how many operations we do, how many hearts we fix, how many bottles of this or that we sell. You have a question here? I don't know. I don't know if you can hear the back. I'm going to play Jerry Springer here and say, Alex, Alex. So I was just wondering if, if you think we're creating a generation of hypochondriacs with all of the new gadgets to self-monitor. Well, we don't know, but we may want to look into that. And I wonder who here is interested in that kind of stuff. I am. So we are even trying to come up with a taxonomy of adverse events of technologies, information and communications technologies, going beyond the brain's tumor thing, okay? Millions of dollars are being spent on clinical trials or cohort studies, figuring out, okay? Observational studies mostly, if there is a relationship between mobile phones and brain cancer. But very little is being spent on even talking about, you see, the consequences of technology in a consistent way. So any of you interested in that, I would welcome uh, uh, the opportunity to collaborate. Yes, please. There is a microphone there with you. Um, it seems to be this payoff between, like, when you live long, you also automatically get a lot of diseases. So there is a payoff between, like, long life and a good life, sort of. But most people that live until they're 80, 90, do they think it's worth it? Like, do they think it's worth living that long, even though they're getting all kind of diseases and chronic Again, we haven't right. paid enough attention to that. Who cares? You understand? Who cares? We dumped it. 
think. Now we know they cost a lot, so probably we're going to start asking that kind of questions. And, and what appears to be the case is that in some settings, within some studies, most people seem to be okay with their lives. But we have neglected that very much. So another opportunity for research, you see. As you mentioned, the, uh, most of the diseases that in the past 50 years have been cured not by medicine, but by changing infrastructure and cleaner water and disposal of waste and stuff like that. I didn't say that. What I said is that a lot of our extended life expectancy can be attributed to those, to those things. And, yes. Uh, and, also, and also, to a minor extent, to our ability to turn lethal diseases into chronic ones. Diabetes is an example. Or to cure some, like, infect, like infections. Correct. So why, why don't we keep doing that for the rest of the world? Okay, because it's sexier and, and you make much more money fixing um, um, bodies that broke down yeah, and, uh, than doing all the other things. And, and also because we really don't know very much about a few things, and that's, that's exactly where I'm trying to go here. So I think for you guys who are spending a lot of time and, and by the way, feel free to interrupt me. And I want to have a conversation with you. So here I'm breaking okay, some of the structures. And I, 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 I enjoy it, by the way. Look at that. Uh, we have put a lot of emphasis on diagnosis and treatment. Don't forget them. We still need to do a lot along those lines, but not at the expense of the others. So if you're looking for great projects, think about some of these other areas, going all the way to bereavement. Because when somebody dies, a lot of suffering happens to those who are left behind. And we're doing very little, you see, along those lines. Um, so in the United States, I think 40% of all research funding uh, for research and development comes from the pharmaceutical industry. Mm -hmm. And the way they make money is they treat the problem. And it's actually, you know, as far as markets, it's better for them to continue treating the problem as opposed to preventing it. So how, does the, how do we get around the challenge of the market um, not being in prevention or promotion, but being in treatment? Okay, how about that for a grand challenge? Okay, how about that for a conversation of a group like this? So high power. So if the leading cause of death in the US, and I would claim in most other places, at least of high income levels, is the healthcare system. How about that for a challenge? I, I invite you, you're connected there. Check Marcia Angel. Marcia Angel, A-N-G-E-L-L. -L, first and only chief, uh, editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. Put depression and put New York Review of Books. Over there, you will see how the pharmaceutical industry has not only invented new, new diagnosis for their products, but has manipulated and corrupted a lot of the research on depression to the point that 30 to 40% of Americans are now diagnosed as being depressed yeah. and getting it. And when the studies were looked at very carefully, and she reviews two or three books in that, Marcia Angel, A-N-G-E-L-L, -L, okay? New York Review of Books. You will see there how, apparently, some of the biggest blockbusters in the history of medicine, antidepressants, the new ones, might not be better than placebo, or in fact, may be harmful to people. And yet, billions every year are spent on them. And this is the only, first and only, female editor-in-chief of the most important biomedical journal in the world. And when she stepped down from that post, she decided to, to tackle this. 
So read that and you will see a lot of very interesting insights. So grand challenges, how about this one? How about this one? Oh, we have almost killed that model. I, I am the, the chair of the International Advisory Board for the Beijing Institute of Technology. China has now $123 billion to spend in the next two years to transform its healthcare system. And there is a big fight between two factions. One group wants to rebuild or fix 10,000 hospitals and bring the latest MRI machines, the latest CT scanners, the latest gamma knives, all that stuff. And another group, very small and very vulnerable, is trying to protect Eastern uh, Chinese medicine approaches. You see non-traditional ways of looking at disease at the body and to put more emphasis on primary care and, and, and community and what they call human-centered, family-focused health. And I think that group is likely to lose. But there's no effective basis, right, on the budget, on the Chinese I don't know. What do you mean by scientific basis, you see? So, Peer review is a very bad system. And check Richard Smith. Richard Smith, former editor of the British Medical Journal, and put peer review. And you will see his criticism. The peer review system may be doing more harm than good because we publish what we want to publish. It delays publications, it's manipulated, and we have been studying it for at least 15 years, the peer review system. And seems to be like democracy. Is better than the alternative, who knows? But check Richard Smith, please, peer review. And this is another grand challenge. How do we decide what is good, what's bad, from whose perspective? What should the outcomes be? You see, this is the kind of, I'm getting fired up here because this is the kind of conversation I want to have with you. And I would take one more and then let me a couple of things and all, all of you will have a chance to, to chat, but you have the microphone and she's a woman and she's much more wiser than you, I bet. So, <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, Alex, thank you for, for this contribution. I, I also did medical training in, in Canada, and I think that um, you know anyone that's working within the system sees a lot of very heartbreaking situations, and you, you really question what, what we're doing. And um, I'm wondering, like at the same time, you have teams of people working very hard to do what they think is the right thing. And there are lots of problems. And, and are you suggesting? What are, I guess what I'd love, and maybe your presentation is going to come with that next, but what do you s specifically suggest? Because a lot of the measurements of wellness are very hard to do. How about that for a nice challenge too? Okay, so I'm getting there. I'm getting there. So I'm just warming up here. I have about 18 minutes. And I hope, I, okay, you, are, you have the only hand up, so go for it. Of you, I will talk about that in a second. I'm about to talk in about five minutes. I will be discussing euthanasia. Okay? Again, taboos, taboos. So let's start talking about the well-being dimension, that construct that we really cannot define well. My bet is that we cannot define it. What's well-being? I know what being well is, but how can we have a metric around that? And can we agree even if we get one? This is very interesting, you see, and extremely important. I would like to claim that this is one of the grandest challenges for us humans. Even the Constitution of the United States said the pursuit of happiness is a right. What, what do we mean by happiness? Who's paying attention to that? So I prefer to use well-being just to keep it within the traditional definition of health. But look at this. How about a wellness system? And I don't know where the pointer is. I, I saw Daniel pointing 
and this thing was meant to point or is meant to point, if you have another one, no, no, this one has a pointer in it. But look at this. So I started to dissect this thing. Think apps, think metrics, think services, think whatever you want. But we need to have a conversation. So I started doing some of this work uh, in association or stimulated by a city that is being built in Portugal, which I hope will be the ideal city. And I, I challenged the group behind that city in Portugal to build a city that promotes well-being, happiness. Thank you very much. So I started to dissect this thing, and there are three elements that I want to share with you. And this is a conversation. Please challenge me, because I'm trying to figure out how to start a good, constructive conversation. So the first element of a wellness system is the active pursuit of joy. And I've been asking people all over the world. I've been to 94 countries. And some of the questions you will get from me when we meet is, what makes you happiest? What makes you happiest? Have you ever asked yourself, what makes you happiest? Happiest. What makes you happiest? Sorry? When you can bring peace and happiness. What makes you happiest? Well, and how about trying to eliminate those? Because other, that may take it longer than we think. And, and okay? That's what I say. In the meantime, sir, we have things for that, but they are taboo. Euthanasia is just one. Okay. But drugs, it's about choice. If, I, if my grandmother who had a stroke, who was really suffering... Could be stoned so until the rest of her days. Okay, why don't we have a conversation around that, okay? Well, there you go. So now we are talking. Okay, so we are starting to push the envelope which I think is not that I'm condoning this, is that we don't talk about these things. Okay? And I would like to say, enough. I'm now almost 50. I'm scared to death. I am a wimp. I hate pain. I hate suffering. This is why I'm devoting my life to it. But it seems as if I'm the only one talking about these things in most places. And people say, we miss Alex, Oxford Alex. I spent five years at Oxford developing things on clinical trials. And some of my friends said, I missed Oxford Alex, the one with the odd ratios and the relative risks and all that stuff. I don't miss that, Alex. I was the head of the evidence-based center at McMaster where the whole thing started. I don't miss that one. That was a reductionist, Alex. Okay? And bear with me just for a second. Let me just, because I want to show you three pieces, and I have another stop over along the way. Okay? And Daniel, where are you? I hope you're enjoying this. And OK, I have about 13 minutes. If, if the group wants to extend, I will extend for a few minutes, OK? So but look at this. I've been asking people, what makes you happy? Yes, that's non-negotiable. And we need to define that as soon as possible. Most people don't stop to ask. <coughs> what makes me happy? Yes, is not knowing. Being ignorant. Wow. 
I get so much pleasure not knowing. Not knowing. And I guess I got paid now as a professor to ask questions. Beautiful. That's what I say to my kids. Figure out what makes you happiest and find a way in which you get paid to do what you would pay to do at a level that would make you feel uncomfortable. Not hurting other people on purpose. So I've been asking people. And these are the answers. Sharing, questioning, that's mine. Exploring, learning, creating, disrupting, making a difference. How about developing interventions that would allow us to improve these outcomes? How can we create an app that would help us question more effectively? To disrupt, to be shit disturbers in a much more potent way. To question things. To try to make a difference together. Probably one I would love to have. How about the second element? How can we eliminate unnecessary suffering? And there is a lot of that. And this one has four components. We need to relax. We need to relax. We are a frantic society. We are pursuing more and more and more and more. And we don't have enough of anything. And we don't seem to be able to relax most of the time. We need to forgive ourselves and other people. Big challenge. Look at the Middle East. Look at Colombia, my native country. Boy, we have a huge need for forgiveness. How could we develop interventions that would enable us to forgive more effectively? Hmm? Otherwise, we're going to live forever hating other people. Are we going to have a hateful singularity? Imagine that. Bickering. <laughs> Endlessly. <laughs> How about relieving? How about offloading regrets? I would like an app that would help me offload things. And I'm a regret manager most of the time. And I do house calls on Fridays. I go and visit families, and I sit there with them. What do you regret the most? That's the second most important question. What makes you the happiest? What do you regret the most? And deal with those two. And we have a problem now, thanks to the healthcare system. This was a study published uh, in the Journal of Palliative Care, but not about dying people, people with cancer, which are usually the, the, the patients that appear in journals of palliative care. Palliative care is what happens to people when we declare them incurable. And this is the list of symptoms that this group of patients experienced towards the end of their lives. And they were living in long-term care facilities, those who were sitting there on those wheelchairs watching television. Look at this. 50, I just drew a box around those that were present in 50% or more of cases. And anorexia, they cannot eat enough. They lose their appetite or we lose our appetite. Things don't taste as well. Anxiety. Restlessness. You don't know what to do with yourself. You see them sitting there, but they are gone inside. Yeah? Restless, restless. Weakness and fatigue. Fatigue is the number one symptom in people with cancer, by the way. Dysphagia, they cannot swallow. Pain, in 71% of cases, and constipation, they cannot poo. And there is a poem, for whoever asked me about uh, happiness at the end of life, called The Golden Years. Please look for it, The Golden Years. And put P, P-E-E. -E. The golden years, 
and I want you to read it very, very quickly when you find it. The golden years, put P or screw, C-S-C-R-E-W, screw of having sex. Again, okay? if you find it, let me know. But this seems to be true, that point. Have you found it? The golden years. The golden years. Okay. So I went to university for almost 20 years, and then I, I realized halfway through that nobody had told me about pain, and I hate pain. So I became an anesthesiologist, and then I became a pain specialist. And now I'm studying how to improve the level of competence of physicians and nurses and dentists about the management of pain. And I had some slides to show you, but I'm going to give you the summary. If you have pain, what is the best health professional that you should visit to get relief? Sorry? Oh, that's an interesting one. And we have three com comedy troops that want to work with us on this. It might be. From the studies that we have, veterinarians. Veterinarians, vets. If you have pain, you would be better off going to a veterinarian than to a physician, a normal physician. In the countries where we have looked at the amount of time devoted to the management of pain, to train students on how to treat pain, how to manage pain, it is shown that veterinarian students get three to five more time on pain management than medical students. That's how much we have forgotten what is important to us. And 30% of the population have chronic pain. How about that for a beautiful health system? And we pay $5.5 trillion a year in healthcare services worldwide. The poem, could you please read it? We need the microphone here. And where are you from originally? Bulgaria, but I'm from Canada. Perfect, so we're going to get Bulgarian Canadian accent here. And read the poem, and I hope, Daniel, you're not going to shut me down in a few, but this is brilliant. Okay? I cannot see, I cannot pee. Dr. Zeus on the golden years. I cannot see, I cannot pee, I cannot chew, I cannot screw. My memory shrinks, my hearing stinks, no sense of smell, I look like hell. My body's drooping, have trouble pooping, the golden years have come at last, the golden years can kiss my ass. I think you all should have that point on your screensavers in front of the toilet where you poo, okay? <laughs> so you sit there and say, oh, I can poo now and it doesn't hurt. I can pee and I can control these things. I need to do something about it. Because that's what is making most people suffer now. I cannot pee, I cannot see. I cannot chew, I cannot screw. The golden years have come at last. The golden years can kiss my ass. The golden years. We set retirement age, 65 in most places. Why? Because life expectancy at that time was about 60. So we gave people the illusion that if they work their asses most of their lives, and if they reach 65 and we are immortal for practical purposes, so it will be me for sure. We're going to enjoy all those golden years, writing the books we couldn't write, traveling the world as we couldn't, spending time with our grandchildren, playing golf, whatever. 90% or more of people at the age of 65 have at least one chronic incurable disease now. And this is what's bothering them the most. And we are not training people on how to handle these things. In fact, we're not studying most of these things. And we have many taboos. 
I'm going to go into taboo territory, mental disorders. An invisible crowd and humongous. Look at this data, scary. Depression is now the leading cause of disability in the world. Put depression, disability in any of your search engines. 30% of people worldwide are affected by mental disorders. 30%. These diseases are the biggest contributors to morbidity in the world. At least 28% of global burden of disability in the world now. How about that? I get a new heart. Bravo. Thank you very much. But I'm screwed. <laughs> Mentally. I'm anxious and I cannot control my anxiety. Or I'm depressed. I think life is worthless. Am I going to live forever with this sense of worthlessness? Yeah. At least two-thirds are without treatment. And look at this. 60% of people with mental illnesses are untreated in the US. And the figure goes up to 74% in Europe and to almost 99% in China. How about that for unnecessary suffering? How about that for a grand challenge? Who cares? Okay. Who cares? Who's paying attention to these things? And we are dumping a lot of the burden on other people. And we call them caregivers. The figures are staggering. In Canada, 20% of the population is paying roughly the same. We don't have enough data on caregiving in most countries. Somebody looking for somebody else, unpaid. Look at this, no gender equity. About 45% of, um, of people who are caregiving are women over the age of 40, 45 unemployed. They're looking after children, they are looking after a job, and they need to look after somebody else. A parent or two, a spouse or an offspring. 20% of the population, no gender equity here. They are absorbing at least one third of overall health costs in Canada, estimated at $80 billion. And we spend about $193 billion in the healthcare system. Unpaid, unrecognized, because we give you prescriptions for things. Go home, live with these chronic diseases on your own, and when you break down, we'll pay attention to you. Come to the emergency room, we'll admit you. Because that's what we are trained to do, fixing people. Very few, in Canada, less than 25% of people receive support from the, from the system. Worse in most other countries. And this is getting pretty scary. 50% of caregivers are acknowledging emotional distress and physical problems, mostly depression and back pain, as a result of being looking after somebody else. In other words, we're creating another wave of people with chronic illnesses. They're neglecting them. This is pretty serious stuff. Who's liable for this? Who's accountable for this? What are we going to do about this? Who cares about this? Yeah. What's the role of the Singularity University in this? And now the third one, coping with unavoidable suffering. Fall in love, have a child, unavoidable suffering, right there. How can we deal with it? This is the kind of suffering that makes us grow and mature and have a fulfilled life. This is meaningful suffering. How about accepting, that, tolerating, compensating, transcending? These are words that we don't see often enough. How could our work contribute to this? 
And even if we get this nasty disease diagnosed, how can we tra transform that nasty diagnosis into the most meaningful thing that could have ever happened to us? You have cancer, thank you. Imagine that. Because this is stopping me on my tracks and, and forcing me to think, why am I here? And how am I going to ensure that whatever time I have left, finite or infinite, will be used meaningfully? So, to your point, the Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland. If you have enough money and you think you have enough, you go there and they help you kill yourself. So it's not euthanasia, it's assisted suicide. So you are given a cocktail, and you press the button yourself. They are not killing you. So it's not euthanasia. That's the difference between the two. Euthanasia is when the health system kills you. Okay? Assisted suicide is when I enable you to kill yourself. And there is this clinic, the Dignitas Clinic. And uh, I have many examples. And my wife said, don't spook them. She's the chair of my board of directors. So I listen and comply. The first secret of a happy life as a, as a member of, of a couple. Listen and comply. Listen and comply. Yep. Comply is the most important part. Not pretend to listen and pretend to comply because they can figure you out in no time. Okay? Listen and comply wholeheartedly. So she said, don't spook them. Just show them one because I have quite a collection of these things. But this is a Canadian couple. This man wants to die in, in the Dignitas Clinic. And his wife, who is not dying, said, I want to die with him because I cannot conceive of a life without him. And this is my life. And I don't want to face the rest of my life with all these sources of suffering. And the Swiss government is considering to change the law to allow couples to, to die with their spouses or their partners. Okay? And there is somebody who just committed prevented, preventive suicide. And she went to a Dignitas clinic and said, I'm starting to feel unwell. I want to go now before my kids stop loving me. How about that? And she was allowed to, to, to kill herself with support from the Dignitas clinic. A former conductor of the BBC orchestra went there with his wife, and both of them died, but both of them were unwell. But this is the first case in which a spouse is saying, and there is a Wikipedia article, by the way, on them. And you can comment on all that on this couple. Yeah. And I can give it to you. So this is the kind of new challenges we are facing. People saying, OK, the singularity may be near, but it's not near enough for me. And I'm suffering a lot. And this is my life. And if we look at the surveys that are done on a population basis, over 70% of people agree with euthanasia. in most of the surveys that I've seen, at least in North American, Western Europe, or with assisted suicide. But we are not having enough of a conversation around this. So the path to the singularity must be fulfilling, must be a path of well-being. And that's part of our responsibility. We are in the transitional phase. We're not there yet. We have a huge responsibility to make sure this, that this journey is as enjoyable as possible. What are we doing about it? 
who cares about this? Who is accountable for what's not happening? Correct, all of us, all of us. So I'm going to quote something that my grandfather shared with me and then I will accelerate because I have about four minutes left. But this is what my grandfather, that man you met at the beginning, said to me when I was admitted to medical school. I came jumping, Grandpa, Grandpa, I got it, I got in, I got in. He said, remember, 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 he said to me. This business is about curing sometimes, alleviating often, and consoling always. We have flipped it. We console sometimes, we alleviate often, not that often, and we try to cure always what is incurable now. And we're creating a lot of unnecessary suffering along the way. So there are lots of applications, lots of tools, lots of tools, lots of tools. No clear business models, no clear big vision. Most of these e-health applications are designed to tackle tiny things. And even Google had to shut down its health group. They thought that just giving people access to electronic health records was going to do it. Microsoft, as I am told, over 1,000 people devoted to Health Vault. And I say, does it pass the so F what test? Every time I'm presented with a new e-health innovation, I get to see a lot of those. Some people think I'm the highest ranked academic in the world in e-health. I don't believe in those metrics and I don't believe in those things anyway. But a lot of things come to me and I say, so what when I see them? I'm dying to see applications that pass the so fucking what test. There are gadgets done by people who love gadgets and don't love people so much. You can do that neat, so fucking what? You can do that neat, so fucking what? <laughs> I know you can do it. Should you do it? And why are you doing it? What's the outcome? What's the question? What's the question that drove you to do that? Okay. And we don't have good evaluation frameworks. So we are trying to come up with tools that allow us to assess things as they evolve. And it's not easy because most organizations reward us for giving clear answers to things. They're still under the illusion that the world is full of simple problems. That we, if we continue to unpack reality to its most basic components, we're going to be able to reconstitute and give us an eternal happy life. Eternal maybe, happy, hmm, not sure. Okay. So we are trying to gather groups of people interested in pushing the boundaries of these things. And when I show these kind of articles, people say, oh, we missed the Oxford, Alex. I wrote the textbook on clinical trials for the British Medical Journal when it had its 50th birthday. And I say, so fucking what, Alex? <laughs> it fell short. So we are trying to join forces around the world to see if together we can accelerate the transformation of healthcare and wellness systems together. And I'm going to go very quickly through this. This model that we call radical global innovation is that we are trying to build together. So radical because it goes to the root of the problems. We don't want to tinker. We want a major overhaul of the system. 
local because nobody has critical mass to do anything meaningful anywhere. So we need to connect the best that we have locally with the best that we have globally. And innovation because it's about using knowledge and tools to produce value, improve the quality of life of people, generate wealth, technological advances, cognitive, intellectual development, and political stability. So we find leaders with complex issues who have high stakes and multiple options to choose from, but they are paralyzed because they don't know which of the options to pick. And then we bring the best available knowledge from around the world, and this is an example of what we do, and please visit opimec.org. And here we have over 800 groups worldwide joining forces trying to answer some of the questions that I've been throwing around here today. And we are using open source tools, we're using social media and all that. We co-created the book together and launched it at when Spain was president of the European Union last year. And then we pick places of the world that meet 10 criteria. And in these places, we work with everybody participating in the ecosystem to create what some people hate as a term, living labs, places where we can imagine the future and create it together in a global way with participation from the global community because now we are human nodes in a global super organism. And we get stakeholders to provide input, especially those who don't want to change things. And we build plausible scenarios. We test them together. And the first of our labs was in Andalusia, 8 million people in the southern part of Spain. Okay? And it's called Living Lab Andalusia. And we are looking at different things together, collaborating with people from around the world. And at the end, we're hoping to come up with feasible options, with business models that work, and with risk mitigation plans that allow decision makers to get unstuck. There is no leadership in the world these days to transform things radically in a positive way. We have managers, which is OK. It's OK to manage. But it's extremely important to lead. Most leaders are scared or they are crazy. So we get people together once or twice a year. This was in Barcelona during the European eHealth Conference. We brought 31 ministers of health. We got them to accept the framework for the exchange of information across national boundaries in Europe. But this group here managed over $50 billion worth of projects. Over $50 billion, this little group here. We have the chair of the eHealth Committee of China. We have the chief information officer of Singapore. We have here Cliff Friedman from the National Office of IT in the US. These people, over $50 billion in the budgets, and we're getting together to figure out how we go for grand challenges together. And I just came from a visit to Rhode Island, which is becoming the living lab in the US. But we have the York region in Canada. We have five regions of China. Malawi, now we're working with a group in Bangladesh, where there is only one physician for six million people. To see if we can use the real world as a place where we together can invent a better future for us and for the generations that follow. And this is one of my heroes, Pierre Taylor de Chardin, who wrote magnificent things. He had to publish his book, The Phenomenon of Man, after he died because the Pope wouldn't allow him to publish it. And Jesuits promised obedience to the Pope. So every time they get difficult, they are sent to suicide missions or they are shut down. So this man said the following. The day will come when after harnessing space, the winds, the tides, gravitation. We shall harness the energies of love. And he called this new sphere on top of the biosphere to create a sphere of, of, of knowledge, of goodwill, where we humans, he didn't even 
see a mobile phone or wireless networks where we could become human nodes in a human superorganism, supporting each other to go through the gates of the superhuman, as he said. And on that day, for the second time in history, of, in the history of the world, man will have discovered fire. So I would like to leave you with my last question. That's what brought me here. And this is the one that I hope would enable us to continue doing things together, if you so please. But will we be able to harness the power of our minds and tools and our love to promote optimal levels of joy for all together? Thank you very much. getting a major case of head goosebumps. <laughs> I discovered this. When you lose your hair, you may be able to reflect, okay, to, to relate to me with what I'm feeling now. I was in October of last year speaking to the palliative care uh, at the World Congress on Palliative Care talking. I spent a lot of time talking about death and dying. And I got a very, very meaningful response. And thank you for, you cannot imagine how much I appreciate it. I had my first episode of head goosebumps. I call them now head orgasms, and, uh, and you just gave me one. So once again, thank you very much for that. Yeah, okay, thank you. You contributed significantly to my, to my well-being, and I really appreciate your response because I wasn't sure if I was going to pitch it uh, well. Okay, so I took a big risk. Daniel said, tell them about the latest developments in e-health. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay? And, and early this morning, I said, too late. I'm here. I'm in the program. I'm going to talk about the human side. They should check your TED conference. His TED lecture in Maastricht. You will get an amazing presentation on, on e-health developments. He did a better job than I, than I could have ever done. And I'm really, really pleased by the fact that you seem to have enjoyed this a lot. So thank you again. And by the way, I have permission from my personal board of directors, six people. Martha, my wife, who is in Colombia. Uh, my two daughters, one in LA now and the other one in Italy. Two, couple, two persons in a couple, two people in a couple, Murray and Eleanor Enkin. They have been together for 68 years. Okay? And they haven't grown up yet. And that's what I want to be. Okay? And my assistant, who assesses me every Friday. I have permission from them to answer any question you want. Especially from my wife. Anything goes. Yeah. So five minutes, anything. Yeah. I have a sensor for butt, okay? So I was expecting it. Okay, go, 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 go for it. Go. I have a sense that's uh, more or less what religions are trying to do is to promote the wellness and self-wellness and wellness of others. Uh, sometimes health as well, but I think it balances out with the health system. And I think that's why the health system came in. They thought that wellness is already being handled by religion. Let's focus on the physical matter of yeah, it. What do you think? Easier. You see, we are lazy. So, we are lazy in the healthcare sector. So. But the religion is already taking care or trying to take care of that. So wouldn't trying to support religion and 
bring it back rather than yeah, what's happening globally. How many of you are agnostics, for example, <laughs> in this room? Look, look, look. 50% of the people here would not be benefited by that. Okay, so you say we are trying to bring religion. Half of the people in this room wouldn't, couldn't care less, or they may be worried about that. So, so then there is a risk. So I'm with you. And, and throughout our evolution, you see about um, 6,000 years ago, I think that's as far as we can go, we were the same people. We were healers. And when people ask me, what do you do? I said, I'm trying to be a healer, a healer. And we have forgotten that word, healing. So healers used to be priests and what we call now health professionals. And pharmacists, by the way. In the 14th century, well, about, what, I would say 3,000 years ago, we started to separate things. And in Egypt, for example, even more, 4,000 years ago, probably even more than that, we had the high priest was even more powerful than the pharaoh. Okay? Uh, but yes, we developed that line of work that took care of spirituality, let's say. Okay? The sense of purpose and meaning of life. Then in the 14th century, we spun off the pharmacists. <coughs> about one or 200 years later, the dentists. So we don't care about the mouth anymore, physicians. And guess what's the most prevalent chronic disease in the world? Dental cavities. And not even dentists care about them anymore. Big holes we are living out there. And then um, nursing in the 19th century. So we are going to leave that high-touch thing for other people. We want to concentrate on the hard stuff. Okay? And, and what we have done is fragmented the human. So we send interconsults to each other. Oh, you have a spiritual problem? Go to the priest. But I don't believe in God. You're screwed. Go to a psychologist. Okay? And the psychologist cannot prescribe. And they give, if I don't like this kind of approach, what do I do? Okay, go to a psychiatrist. All or most of what they do is prescribing stuff, okay? Because that's what psychiatry has become these days. And we are somehow worse off than we could have been. So my call here is for a collective effort in which we don't separate the different components of our humanity and that we together, you see, try to figure out how to optimize whatever we mean by well-being. In some cases, religion will be the answer. In some cases, it will be something else. Yes, please. What's the function of ego in Sorry? What is the function of ego in the new sphere? What is the what? The function of ego. Of ego. Well, in the new sphere. It depends on how you define ego. Uh, if, if, you, if you take an, a Freudian approach to ego, or if you talk a, take a more colloquial approach to ego, which is pride, and you see, which may be what you are saying. We are, I wrote a book that you may enjoy, which is, was entitled Unlearning. So if you put Unlearning and then had that downloaded, don't buy it. Okay? We need to screw the publishing houses to the current publishing models, okay? Yeah, so download it, and I did that as an experimental thing. Okay? So Unlearning. So in Unlearning, I focus a lot of the, of the work, which was bibliotherapy. I go for three to four weeks of writing and reading to cleanse myself. Okay? So it's very humbling. We are very territorial. And the most important territory we have is the territory of the I. We still don't know what I is, where I is located, if any. You understand? We really don't understand that. And there is a book. Uh, we are, uh, sorry, I am, uh, I am a huh, loop. I'm a strange loop by Douglas Hofstadter. Probably the best book I read in the first 10 years of this century. I am a strange loop. So the ego is a problem because we recognize ourselves 
as something, as an entity that we call I. I am Alex. I am a physician. You are not I. You are not me. So I can set territories. And we have been fantastic at building boundaries, most of the mental, starting with I. Where, where do you end and where do you begin? Here, I don't think so anymore. Okay? So the ego, which has a lot to do with how much we value ourselves, is one of our single biggest problems. Because now we define ourselves and others by, by what makes us different, not by what makes us similar. And, uh, and that's a big problem. Until we realize that we are, you understand, seamlessly integrated with everybody else and everything else, we are going to be facing the same challenges. Even at home, we have diversity. I'm the only man, for example, so I am not a woman. One of our daughters sings beautifully. All the others are not singers. You understand? One of them likes Barcelona more than okay, other teams. So you can split humans in every possible way, and our challenge is that we are doing it from our own perspective. So we look at everything in terms of territories and boundaries that we seem to to, to struggle to, to cross. So ego plays a humongous role in, in the prevention of the building of that new sphere. New sphere, unfortunately. But then uh, that's a humongous challenge for the Singularity University. Because it would be impossible to have singularity with independent egos trying to gain as much territory as possible, which is what we're doing now. Take your pick. Rock, say, no, no, you had one chance, so let's go. Yes. Now your turn, please. Or, or you do rock, paper, scissors once. Yes. Rock, paper, scissors. Okay. Another one? You want? Okay. Go, paper. Learning, discovery, contribution. Um, so learning, discovery, contribution. Um, difference. Yes, and all of those, in those moments, that's when you definitely, you know, and when end of life is coming and you, you're realizing that that's coming, which it is coming for everyone, uh, theoretically. Um, those actually are the things that I agree um, make you feel alive or, or bring the joy. And, and then you presented the euthanasia piece there and I thought, okay, interesting, because that's a bit of a conflict um, in some ways. That's a bit of what? It feels like a little bit of a conflict with that okay, idea. If you don't mind, uh, could you please go to the slide back where the three boxes are? I'm glad you raised. And them. I, I want to just to no, throw no, out for you to comment. A funny thing. So this is important. Okay. Please, any of you interested in this stuff, let me know, okay? Because it feels very lonely, and we're just a bunch of crazy people, a small group of people talking about these things, and we need to whisper. Because this is scary for a lot of people. They think that we're going into a new age kind of thing. You understand? <laughs> and, and, and this is it's easy to be labeled as something that we are not. We are just human beings trying to get the best possible deal of the time we have here, including, if, hold it yes. there, including if it is infinite, or in particular, if it is infinite. I just finished the book, All Men Are Mortal, by Simone de Beauvoir. Exquisite, OK? Or Galapagos, by Kurt Vonnegut. I collect books about immortality, by the way. So, so any of you who may have titles of interest, let me know. But look, euthanasia comes probably here, coping with unavoidable suffering. Mm -hmm. Because at this case, at, when you are deemed palliative or incurable, mm -hmm. then, hey, Jill, I need to give you a big hug. That's a superman right there. And has devoted a big chunk of his life to helping others to eliminate unnecessary suffering. 
I'm delighted you're here. Spend some time with him if you haven't met him. ACOR, Association of Cancer Online Resources, a pioneer. He saw social media before pretty much everybody else and, and the power that it had to, to improve our levels of well-being. So thank you. So here, I'm with you. Look, yep. coping with unavoidable suffering, it's not this anymore. It's accepting. This is the most difficult thing for people, mm -hmm. to accept that the end is coming and that you had a lot of things undone. Tolerating. <coughs> You see, tolerating your imperfection, tolerating your limitations, compensating for what you don't have, you understand? And transcending your human mm -hmm. condition, you see, mm -hmm. as much as possible. So, so these are different kinds of gerunds from these others. If you mm -hmm. can enjoy those at the end of your life, great. But in most cases, you're so exhausted that, that, that the energy should, in many cases, be more... I agree with, I agree. I just wanted to throw out also, I agree with the... Um, idea that in some cases that's, um, you know, no one knows what someone's going through until they've been through it themselves. And so I would agree that in some cases those options are definitely, um, but what I was actually wanting to propose is that are these, is there no, once you find out you have a cancer that's terminal, it is, it, are there possible opportunities for you to still share and contribute and patients like me for as an example would be a way that you are okay I actually got this it's a gift because now I'm going to go through a whole other experience that I can share and so I'm I interested in all these three things are present the, all the time yeah I am dying now you yeah. see my children I have two daughters 17 if you go to Facebook you'll find them there and uh, uh, my two daughters are 16 and 19 we raised them my wife and I or my wife and me, in that particular case, I know what follows, interesting conundrum, uh, to make ourselves dispensable. From the very first moment when we saw them and I delivered both of them, I said, how can I make sure that you don't need me, that you love me? Throughout my life, whatever I have left, that you don't need me as soon as possible. So now I am preparing to die. I have no diagnosis of cancer. But if you think of birth, growth, reproduction, and death. Now my, I have reproduced, and my children have reached an age in which they can reproduce by themselves. I have fulfilled my biological purpose. Okay? So I'm preparing myself to die now. I am pursuing joy actively. I'm trying to eliminate unnecessary suffering. And I have a bit of pain on my, on my heart shoulder, on my, on my right shoulder, and it's a rotator cuff, and we don't have magic things for that. And I'm a pain specialist. I'm struggling with that. That's the main source of suffering I have, I have now. And I'm trying to cope with unavoidable suffering by accepting my mortality. And I spent one and a half years with Murray Enkin. Do a search, Enkin and ignorance. He wrote the seven stages of ignorance. And he was compared to Socrates by the Royal Society of Medicine. And he's one of my members, of, the only man in my board of directors. So now I'm working on accepting my mortality and that nothing really matters. Nothing, nothing, nothing really matters. Okay, I'm tolerating the fact that I'm going, the idea of my death, I'm trying to compensate by sharing with you. So I'm trying to make myself dispensable in academic terms. And I'm trying to transcend my individuality by inviting you to join into this super organism of which I feel deeply I belong. Okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm going through these things. At the end of life, you will go through these things too. And the weight, and this is just in evolution. I really welcome input and contributions. I would like to write this up relatively soon. I, Daniel, is your call? Because, okay, last one. Okay. 
Okay. That's mine. Um, I was wondering, um, in the classic Hippocratic Oath, uh, they mentioned diet and cooking and food, and I feel like a lot of those things are related to a lot of the yeah, things so like active back, pursuit of joy. Back, yes. uh, uh, food, very important. You see, one billion people don't eat enough, and about a billion people eat too much now in the world. First time in history, probably, that that happens, that people are dying because of food. <laughs> on both ends of the spectrum. And if you go back, could you please go back to the healthcare system slide? Um, that's one of the determinants of health, okay? And it's one, it's, food is a fascinating element in, in, in this. And by the way, these things integrate, and I didn't want to show you a complex okay, intermingling of these elements. But if, if, you, if, you, if you go back to the one that says healthcare system, so food is a determinant of health. If you have healthy food, you are more likely to have a healthier life. But food can play a huge role in prevention. Okay? And now there is something called nutraceuticals or functional foods. So the food sector is going into, you see, the development of interventions that, that can improve your health status. So you eat something that will make you, you see, uh, relieve pain or that would make you prevent the disease because now we have vaccines genetically engineered in tomatoes, for example. So food is fascinating and, and food would really pretty much go all the way there, and then there is a big role in terms of rehabilitation and treatment. So food is something that, that cuts across. But food is something that also produces joy. Yeah? And we have forgotten the, the pleasurable aspects of food and the social dimension of food. So, so food is a fantastic thing, like education. I would say they, they cross, they cross uh, all, these, all these domains. And it's changing constantly. But 250 million people are undernourished in India. There are more people in India who don't eat enough than in sub-Saharan Africa. And we, probably during the time I spoke here, thousands of kids died because they didn't have enough to eat. While last night I was struggling if I should eat that hamburger I ordered from the Navy Lodge because it was too big and too cheap. Hmm? Once again, thank you very much. And Daniel, thank you for the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you.